Begin reading with me in verse 13, or you follow along as I read, beginning in verse 13 of John 17. It says, And now come I to thee, this is Jesus speaking, And these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is actually praying. This is what I like to refer to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. If you, are, if you all are familiar with what is often called the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That was a prayer that was prayed by Jesus as an example to his apostles when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so he said, after this pattern, and he kind of gave them the, the pattern that's in that prayer. So when we focus on the Lord's Prayer, please understand that is not the heart of Jesus in the, the sense of John 17 is that was a pattern that Jesus gave to his disciples so that they would know how to pattern their prayers as they prayed to God. And you can go through there and divide that into sections and see what Jesus focuses on. But this is when Jesus is near the end of his life and it is as he prays as our high priest. Now he has not faced the cross yet. And he's praying to God the Father in the presence of his disciples. And so you really get to see his heart. And he tells us in verse, or as he tells the Father in verse 13, he says, Now come I to thee. He's on his way to heaven because he's going to be crucified soon. And these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wants us to have the joy of the Lord fulfilling in us. He wants it working out. And then in the next few verses, he tells us how that takes place. I have given them thy word. There it is. And the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. That is the evil that's in the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He's given us his word. He wants us sanctified. He wants us to have his joy fulfilled within us. But that only comes as we draw closer to him through the sanctification that the Holy Spirit ministers in our lives through God's word. Therefore, God's word is pivotal to this. And for thy sakes I sanctify myself. Oh, sorry, verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. So why did he leave us here? Verse 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Jesus set himself apart to do the will of the Father. By doing that, he purchased our salvation. Now we are to be sanctified to do the will of the Father, and we find how to do that through the truth, and God's word is the truth. Verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Guess who that is? That's you and me. Verse 20, he prayed for you and me. Verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So our job here on the earth is to be sanctified, a set apart from the world and its evil, so that we can represent Jesus Christ the best that we can represent him on this earth so that others can place their faith in Jesus Christ and be brought into the family of God. That's God's plan. Isn't it a beautiful plan? How are we doing? 
because that's what God expects of us. And so we need to be sanctified, don't we? We need to be sanctified through the truth of God's Word. And so as I preach throughout the course of this year, or whoever stands behind this pulpit, and you see this banner behind me, or as the, the camera focuses in as I preach and this uh, banner is behind me, I want us to be reminded of the fact that we need to be sanctified through the truth of God's Word. And I hope by the end of the year that that sinks deep within our hearts and minds. Back in 2019, the then Vice President, Mike Pence, was speaking at an evangelical college, not quite where we would be as far as our stand in regards to conservative issues, but nonetheless, uh, an evangelical college. And in that college, commencement service, he said this, and he was talking to a group of young people who claim to be Christians. And he said this to them. He said, throughout most of American history, it's been pretty easy to call yourself Christian. Now, for those of you who may not be aware, I'm assuming everybody in here understands Mike Pence claims to be a Christian. I believe that he is. And so here is a Christian speaking to a group of young college graduating Christians. And he says this, it didn't even occur to people that you might be shunned or ridiculed for defending the teachings of the Bible. But things are different now. We live in a time when it's become acceptable and even fashionable to ridicule and even discriminate people of faith. Now, if there was anybody in the political scene at that point in time who could have made that statement with authority, it would have been Mike Pence as the vice president of the United States and as a Christian himself and even bearing a Christian testimony while he was the governor of Indiana. And it's not that his word is the final authority because God's word is the final authority, but it should give us a little bit of a wake-up call, shouldn't it? That was 2019. And then we went through COVID. And churches were told they couldn't meet. And governmental officials who should have called upon churches to pray and ask God to take away the COVID actually told churches that they could not meet and worship their God. Totally backwards. And when I think about what is going on in our nation today, it's quite alarming to me. I don't know how you all feel about it. I don't watch much of the news because it can get a little depressing. And it can become very distracting. So I don't watch a lot of it, but I see enough of it to know that our country is just plain in a mess, right? And the trajectory is not good, is it? And I think about that in light of this, and I think about the fact that you and I are to stand out in this evil world as a testimony to Jesus Christ, right? Are we prepared to do that come what may? Are we prepared to stand up for Jesus Christ? And I'm not talking about taking up arms to fight a battle. I am talking about are we prepared to represent Jesus Christ as his believers, as his followers with a faith that says, I will suffer persecution. If that is what comes my way, I will do that and stand up for Jesus Christ as opposed to compromise and give in just to save myself some headache. I pray that we are. Because I believe the day is coming. Now, I'm not here to spread 
gloom and doom. That's not my purpose this morning. I actually want to encourage us. Would you go with me to Exodus 35, please? Exodus chapter 35. What I'm going to preach to you this morning was a message that God had laid on my heart for last Sunday night. I was going to preach it on Sunday night. We started having a testimony service, and I'm telling you, that testimony service got sweet. And we had people all across this auditorium talking about how God had been working in their lives and the blessing that God had given them over the past year, all the way from those who are in the later years of their life, all the way down to somebody praising the Lord that in the month of April, they're going to have a new daughter born into their home. And God's people just thanked God for what he had done in their life. And it was some of the best preaching that we could have had. And so I just folded up the sermon, stuck it back in the Bible and planned on preaching it tonight. And I had something else in mind for this morning. And as I started preparing this morning's sermon, the Lord kept bringing this sermon back to my mind. And I finally said, but Lord, if I preach it in the morning, what, do I, what am I going to preach Sunday night? He said, well, use the one you're preparing for Sunday morning. So I may do that. We'll see. We'll see what the Lord does this afternoon. But we're in Exodus 35 this morning. And I want to begin reading in verse number one. And I want us to understand the situation to give us a little context. They're about to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the wilderness, God had given it to Moses, the pattern of it. And God had given Moses some people who were skilled to do the work because it needed to be done right, because it represented God. And so what God is doing in Exodus 35 He's giving Moses a message to give to God's people that basically says this. We need to build my tabernacle so that I can dwell among men and I will meet you in that tabernacle. And I've already given you the order of the tithes that you needed to do each year with the first fruits and the firstborn that needed to be redeemed and the, uh, the sacrifices that you needed to bring and all of those things that keep my house working and going. I've already given you that, but I want you to understand in order to build the tabernacle, you need to go above and beyond. And you need to give offerings that are greater than the things that I've already asked you to do. And I'm going to ask you to sacrifice. And if you sacrifice, then we can build the tabernacle that I have outlined for Moses. And then when that tabernacle is built, there will be within that tabernacle the, the, the Holy of Holies. And the high priest will come in there and will offer the sacrifice outside, but come in with the blood and will redeem the people. And I will meet with man. And that tabernacle became the center of the camp as Israel moved through the wilderness. And what God did was when the, uh, the tabernacle or when God wanted them to stop as they're moving, this, the cloud that, uh, that leads them stops. And when the cloud stops moving, they build camp. And then as the tabernacle gets set up, that cloud comes and hovers over top of that tabernacle. It was an amazing sight. And then as day turned to night, that cloudy pillar turned into a fire that illuminated the camp enough for them to be able to see. And so every night they had this fire that stood over the tabernacle. That was where God met with man. And every day it was a cloudy pillar. It was a representation of God's presence in the midst of those people. And God says, I want you to build the tabernacle, but it's going to take extra sacrifice. And that's where we come here to chapter 35. Verse 1, And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, These are the words which the Lord hath commanded. 
that ye should do them. Father, lead us into your word today and give us what we need. And Father, I pray that we will set aside our distractions, set aside, Lord, our selfish desires, set aside our own self-centered wills, and help us, Lord, to surrender to you and do exactly what you want. And dear Lord, as that happens, your work will get accomplished, and oh, the joy that floods our souls as we do what we were created to do, and that was to give honor to an almighty, holy, omnipotent, omniscient, loving, righteous God. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to direct us this morning. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Moses is told in verse 1 to pass the words on to the children of Israel. We get down to verse number 4. And in the process of giving some of these details, he says in verse 4, And Moses said unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, spake unto all, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord, whosoever is of a willing heart. Let him bring it, an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass, and then he goes through all of these things that they need to build the tabernacle. And then we get to verse number 10. He says, And every wise-hearted among you shall come and make all that the Lord hath commanded. The tabernacle, his tent and his covering, his tatches, his, I guess it would be tacks, and his boards, his bars, his pillars, and his sockets. Jump over to verse number 20. And before we read verse 20, I just got to tell you, I've done a little bit of study on this and in regards to this tabernacle. And every time I read through this where it talks about this was made of gold, this was made of silver, this was overlaid with gold, this was pure gold, this was made of brass, and this was made of wood covered with gold and all of those things. And as I read through that, I got to wondering how much gold and silver and brass was in this tabernacle. I did a little research and somebody calculated one time because the Bible tells us exactly how much was given in the, in the sense of the metals. And so I did a little research, come to find out the precious metals that were in that tabernacle that they picked up and moved all through the desert for 40 years was the same one that David worshipped in when he was alive and then Solomon replaced it with the temple. But that tabernacle, just the precious metals that went into that tabernacle, somebody had figured it out to be seven and a half tons. Now that didn't count the cloths that they used, which were massive curtains and the wood that was used. That's just the gold, the silver, the brass, seven and a half tons that they picked up. And some of it was carried by ox carts, but some of it was carried by the priests on their shoulders. And these people were asked to give that. Now, what's really interesting to me about that is that God had already given it to them. When they left Egypt, they had been, uh, they had spoiled, that's the word that the, that the Bible uses, they had spoiled the Egyptians, and the Egyptians give them all of these things. And as they leave Egypt and they begin their journey through the, the wilderness, 
and they cross the Red Sea and all of that, they are carrying with them tons and tons of precious metal. And you think about that and you think that God give that to them just so that they could splurge upon themselves. No, God had a plan for them. And that plan was that I'm going to take these things and I'm going to build my tabernacle, but I'm giving it to you ahead of time so that when the time comes and I ask you for offerings, you already have it. Is there application there for us? This, this, this message is not about offerings and tithing and those kinds of things. One day we'll, we'll preach on all of that because I think we need a good biblical understanding of what giving should look like to support the Lord's ministry. It's not all about that, but you can't help but understand that that was the way God designed it, is God's people work to build his house. This message is about something a little different. Look at verse 20. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And so Moses is telling them, these are all the things we need. And if you are of a willing heart, would you please bring these items in so that we can build the Lord's tabernacle? And then we have verse number 21. And they came everyone whose heart stirred him up and everyone whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation and for all his service and for the holy garments. There are two effects upon the congregation that are given in verse number 20. And that is their heart was stirred up and their spirit made them willing. Do you see that? Those are two different things. We're going to talk about them this morning. But I want you to see what happened. Their heart was stirred. Their spirit made willing. And it wasn't everybody, but look what it says. Everyone whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work. So we have the heart, which would be housed in the human soul. We have the spirit that made them willing, that is the spirit of man. And then we have the fact that they brought to the work. And so we have the body involved in bringing and working. And so man is involved in the Lord's service as a triune being. And we've talked about that in this church before, the body, the soul, and the spirit. And so here we have proper worship all given to us within this passage as God stirred them up. And notice how it worked. Their spirit made them willing, it says, and their heart got them on, on board. They were stirred up. Now look at verse number 22. And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing hearted and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets, all jewels of gold and every man that offered, offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. Now we understand bracelets and earrings and rings and jewels of gold, but there's a word in their tablets. And everybody in here under the age of 50 immediately thought of your iPad when you read that verse, didn't you? Now the idea of this verse is something that is uh, flat and made to, to see. And so it could have either been a mirror or it could have been like a little jewelry box or something where jewelry was in it. And you could open up and they were displayed. And so that's the idea of it. We really don't know exactly what it was, but whatever it was, it was made of some precious metal that they were willing to give just like these other items so that it could be put into the tabernacle. It was something that was valuable to them. Look at verse number 25. And all the women that were wise hearted did spin with their hands and brought that which they had spun, both of blue and of purple and of scarlet and of fine linen. Ladies, please take note here. Wise women helped build God's house. Do you see that? 
Men and women alike were involved in building God's tabernacle. We need this church. Look at verse 26. And all the women whose heart stirred them up in wisdom spun gold's hair. And again, the women who were wise were involved in the building of the Lord's tabernacle. And verse 27, and the rulers brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate. And then it goes on and it lists some other things that are given to us here. Men and women alike were involved in building God's tabernacle. We need to understand how this worked. The heart stirred them up. I cannot help as I read that phrase, but think of Brother Dioli because he often says something about being stirred up. I got news for you. We all need to be stirred up from time to time, don't we? If we're not stirred up, things tend to settle to the bottom, right? We need to be stirred up. That, that heart is housed in the, the, the soul of a man. That's where the decisions are made. But the heart is also the seat of our emotions, and it can be tricked by emotions. And so to have your heart stirred up doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing the right thing. But the Bible tells us here that the spirit made them willing, and it's the spirit of man that is the part that God speaks to. So when men's spirit makes him willing, it's because God is involved. And there is a difference. So the correct and lasting decisions must be spiritual in nature. And I'm going to try to help us understand this this morning. So let's talk about these phrases. Let's talk first about the heart being stirred up. Let me ask a question, church. Is it possible to have your heart stirred up and not have your spirit make you willing? And the answer is absolutely. So just going to give you an example. A man that I know and respect many years ago was a man who was overweight. He wanted to lose weight. He knew that it was wrong to be as big as he was because he needed to be a steward of his body, but he had tried and he had tried to lose weight and he would go up and down and up and down. And then one day when I saw him, he was considerably smaller and he was, um, he was a large man anyway. But he had lost quite a bit of weight and he gave a testimony to the church that was there at the time and he said he realized that his body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God used that truth. Okay, now listen. Truth. Truth. God's word is truth, right? As he was reading God's word, the Holy Spirit used the truth of God's word to remind him that his body was the temple of the Holy Spirit. At that point, he made a spiritual decision because God's spirit convicted him in his spirit with the truth of God's word. He made a spiritual decision to represent God properly by taking better care of his body. And after that, he lost the weight and was joyful about it. The way he viewed it made a difference in his approach of physical stewardship. There are some times when we can be stirred in our heart and our spirit not be involved. Sometimes you see something that isn't right in the world and it touches your heart and you say, somebody ought to do something about that. And what you really mean is somebody ought to do something about that as long as that somebody isn't me. Right. There are some charities in this world and they're called charities, they play on your emotions by showing you pictures of tragic events, right? 
or hungry children or children that are dirty and, and, and half naked and they need clothes, they need money to be able to buy those things. And what happens, your heart gets stirred up and sometimes you make a decision to give to those things and that is a heart decision that is the result of your emotions being stirred up and that doesn't necessarily mean that your spirit's involved. Now see, these Israelites here had just heard some good preaching. How do I know it was good preaching? Because Moses was the man of God and he was a true example of a wonderful man of God. And he was giving them the message that came directly from God. And even though it may have been something as simple as saying, this is the Sabbath day, you're to do this, you're not to do this. This is the tabernacle. We need this and we need gold and silver and blue and purple. As even though it was something as simple of that as that, it was God's message coming through God's man to God's people. And that made the service good. So here they are. They had just heard some good preaching. It was about building the Lord's tabernacle, and the message came straight from God. Moses was telling the people exactly what God had told him to say, and it was an exciting service, and it would be very easy to walk away from that service with a heart that was stirred up. But there was more to it than that. Look at uh, chapter 34. So just go back one chapter and look at verse number 35, the last verse of chapter 34. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. And the him there, that last word in that verse, refers to God. So when he went into God's presence, he would take the veil off. When he spoke to the people, he had to put the veil on because it was just downright unnerving to these people. But I'm telling you what, when you're listening to a message from God's man that was directly from God. And Moses is up there preaching. And you know that Moses has spent time in God's presence. So much so that the skin of Moses' face was glowing. And that's the man who's delivering the message. You want to talk about an exciting church service. Whose spirit wouldn't be stirred up after that, right? However, the human heart can be stirred by emotion and the spirit not be involved. The heart can make a decision based on emotion, but the Holy Spirit uses the truth of God's word to direct our spirit to make a spiritual decision. So we're talking about emotion versus truth. But the problem is oftentimes we can't tell the difference because we're not used to walking in the spirit. And if we don't spend time with God and we don't understand this principle right here, then we're not going to be able to discern between my heartfelt thinking and God's Holy Spirit leading me. We need to know the difference. When they work together, God's work can be done properly and God's work can be moved forward. The word of God is called the sword of the spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's tool. It's the sword of the spirit. Not the sword of put your name in there. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's tool to conduct surgery in our hearts to bring us to godly decisions. And if we don't have the sword of the Spirit readily within us, then that Holy Spirit, our Holy, God's Holy Spirit working within us is going to be very limited on how he can conduct us. And so as a result of that, we end up making decisions based upon our own logic or our own emotions. And we end up thinking that our own soulish decisions are directed by God when in reality, God had little or nothing to do with it. Now, these people have just come out of an exciting church service, but it's the word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us. 
and to lead us into the, into the decisions that he wants. We just read in John 17 that the Holy Spirit uses the truth to sanctify us in the midst of a dark world. We must know the word of God in order to make proper decisions. Now, these people here in this account in Exodus had just heard from God and their hearts were stirred and their spirit made them willing. And that resulted in wisdom and offerings and God being honored and oh, the joy that it brought to their heart. Now, let's talk for a minute about this spirit being made willing. Go with me to the book of Acts, please. Acts chapter 7. And we're going to look at a young Moses. In Acts chapter 7, we're going to pick up in verse number 22. This is the message that Stephen, Deacon Stephen, preached. And this message that he preached ended up getting him stoned because God, with his power, convicted the Jewish leadership. But I, in the midst of doing this, he gives us a little insight into Moses. So look at verse number 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. Now, we're not told here what happens after that right away, but we are told about it back in the account in the book of Exodus. And Moses kills the Egyptian for punishing the Israelite, and then he buries the body of the Egyptian in the sand. Verse 25, for he supposed his brethren, that is the, the Jews, the Israelites, he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Would thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian, that is Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in the bush. And Moses saw it and wondered at the sight, and it drew near to behold it. The voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God, etc. You see, Moses' heart was stirred at the age of 40 when he saw the Hebrew being punished by the Egyptian. So he responded with an emotional decision, and he killed a man and buried his body in the sand. Verse number 25 tells us that he supposed his brethren would have known that God was going to deliver them by his hand. What does that mean? That means that Moses already thought about it. You see, Moses probably had thought through some plan of his own and how to deliver the Israelites. And he, really what he tried to do was he tried to do God's work man's way. But his spirit wasn't involved because God wasn't ready and God hadn't spoken to him. There was a burden in Moses' heart. His heart was stirred up, but God had not been involved in directing him yet. And so he, he responded with an emotional response. He kills man and he ends up running for his life. Forty years later, 
God called him out of the burning bush to the task of delivering the Israelites out of bondage. That time he made a spiritual decision based on God's truth and God's word. Not that he wanted to go at that point, mind you. But God said, yes, you're going. And he surrendered to the will of God and God had to work some things out of his life. And all of those things came about and God took Moses and made a great man out of him as he struggled through some things. But he made a spiritual decision based on God's truth. And when that happened, he stuck to it till the task was over and God finally took him home. Two different decisions, 40 years apart. One based on Moses' heart being stirred, the other based upon God speaking to him and him making a spiritual decision. Having his spirit moved by God and making him willing didn't mean it was easy either, by the way. It means God was with him. The same is true for us. Please understand the difference. Sometimes God asks us to do difficult things, but he goes with us. Sometimes God asks us to make big sacrifices, but God always provides for us. Sometimes God asks us to do things that are uncomfortable, but he gives us grace through them as he guides us and directs us. That is when you know that the spiritual decision is made. You know that you're honoring God by your service. So there's a difference. Go to Acts 12. In Acts chapter 12, we're going to talk about John Mark for a minute. Do you all remember the story of John Mark, how that John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey? Do you all remember that story? He had a stirred up heart and he made an emotional decision, but his spirit wasn't on board. And so he ended up deserting early. Look at chapter 12, verse 7. And let me give you the context. Peter was in prison. Peter was in prison. The church was having a prayer meeting. The church was praying for him to be to, to, for him to be uh, released from prison or whatever they were praying. Maybe they were praying for him to be released, for God to be glorified. I don't know exactly what their prayers were, but they were praying for Peter. And it says in verse number seven, and behold, the angel of the Lord came unto him and a light shone in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. He was between two soldiers. and He was chained to those two soldiers. And here Peter is. This is this is amazing to me. Peter is laying between these two Roman soldiers. He's supposed to be killed the next day. And he's laying there sound asleep, so much so that the angel, when the light came in the room, didn't wake him up. He had to literally hit him on the side. Some of us in this room would have been laying there, wringing our hands with chains hanging from them, saying, God, what am I going to do? They're going to kill me tomorrow. What am I going to do? Peter had such confidence in God. He was able to fall asleep between two Roman soldiers in a prison cell. This was not a holiday inn, folks. In a prison cell. And God delivered him. Quite an amazing story, isn't it? But it doesn't end. Go to verse 12. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Man, aren't you glad for those many? If you were in prison, wouldn't you be glad that there were a number of people gathered together praying for you? Yeah. Verse 13. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda, 
And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is not his angel, or it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. <laughs> she left Peter outdoors and just went in to tell everybody. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. You realize whose house this happened at? This happened at John Mark's mother's house. He got to see that. Look at chapter 12, verse 24. Now we're at the end of chapter 12. And the word of the Lord grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when, uh, when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now he decided to get in on it. But man, why not? This was exciting, wasn't it? Well, it gets even better. Now they're in Antioch. And there's the church at Antioch, and man, they're doing great things for the Lord, and who wouldn't get excited over that? And then we get down to verse 2, and it says, And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereinto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at um, uh, Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of, in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. So here's John Mark with them. He went with them on their first missionary journey. They go to the synagogue of the Jews in verse number 5, but we get down to verse number 13. In between verse 5 and verse 13, there's some conflict. They hadn't seen that yet. It was all good up to this point. We get to verse 13. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. He went on this journey, I believe, in an emotional response. He saw some pretty exciting things. It got him stirred up. He wanted to be a part of it. But you see, when they went on that missionary journey, he wasn't in Jerusalem anymore. He wasn't in his mother's house anymore. He wasn't surrounded by Jews anymore. These people did things differently. They even opposed what they were doing. And he packed up and went home. Look at Acts 15. Acts 15, look at verse 37. Acts 15, verse 37. Well, let's get verse 36. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark, but Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them uh, from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. Whatever it was that caused John Mark to go home, Paul thought it was unstable. He didn't want to take him again. It wasn't good to take him. And whatever it was that drove John Mark away, Paul said, nope, we're not going there again. That, that didn't end well. He had made an emotional decision. His heart was stirred. He decided to go, but God wasn't in it. However, when God is in the burden of the work, listen to me, church, when God is in the burden that you have for the work of God, it will not go away. When God burdens you to be involved in his work, your heart will be stirred and your spirit will make you willing 
to sacrifice to achieve God's will. John wouldn't sacrifice at first. John Mark, no, no, I'm done with this. And he goes home. But God got a hold of him. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 4. 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and I want you to look at verse 11. Paul is writing. As he's writing to Timothy, he says this in verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. I love that verse. You know what that verse teaches me? God gives second chances, doesn't he? God gives second chances. You see, Paul describes him as profitable to the ministry, profitable to me for the ministry. Think about this. When Mark wrote his gospel, and this is the man that wrote the gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's the Mark we're talking about. When, Paul, or when, when Mark wrote his gospel, he wrote it to the Gentiles and the Romans in particular. Now, this is interesting, very interesting to me because he was a Jew, he was probably led to the Lord by Peter, because in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter calls him his son, which would be his son in the faith, very similar to what Paul called Timothy. So here is an apostle to the Jews, Peter, leading a Jew to Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, where they had that prayer meeting for the Jerusalem church, and yet Mark writes a book for the Gentiles so that they could be saved somewhere along the way. Mark picked up a burden for the Gentile people. And when God got a hold of his spirit and Mark returned to usefulness, he also adopted Paul's burden for the lost Gentile world. That was the world that he forsook on their missionary journey. And he said, I'm done with this. I'm going back home to Jerusalem where they think like I think and where things are safe and where I can be in the church that I'm familiar with. And, and so here is this man leaving all of that behind now. He has a burden for the lost Gentile world. It is no wonder that Paul calls him profitable to the ministry. What happened? It changed from an emotional decision to a spiritual decision. It wasn't just a heart that was stirred up. It was a spirit that made him willing. And an emotional decision without a spiritual decision gives you no anchor to hold on to when things get tough. Let me say that again, because we need to get this in our in our head. An emotional decision without a spiritual decision gives you no anchor to hold on to when things get tough. But when you know that God has directed you and he directs you as his Holy Spirit sanctifies you and leads you and he leads you with truth. You can hold on to that even when things get tough. And church, let me tell you, if you're doing God's work, things will get tough. And once it became a spiritual decision, he adopted the burden of Paul. He was willing to sacrifice. He ministered to the Gentiles. That is big. That is big. Last week in our church business meeting, we've talked about the improvements that God has allowed us to do just in the buildings, this building in the manor over the last 11 years. We've done two and a quarter million dollars of improvements not counting the things that have been given and volunteered. 
and hundreds of touched lives over the past 11 years in Brentwood Baptist Church. And that's just the time that I've been here. And I'm telling you what, it wasn't all easy. But I have an anchor that I know that God has called me to this ministry and this is where he wants me at this point in my life. And it was a spiritual decision that brought me to that point. That's an anchor that I hold on to. And when the heart and the spirit work in unison, wisdom and God's work is the result. I wonder, I just wonder as I think about this, how much God has wanted to accomplish through the centuries. But the hearts of his people were not stirred, nor were their spirits made willing to do the work. I wonder how many emotional decisions were made, not spiritual ones. And we never finished and accomplished what God wanted. Now, you all have heard me say this before here. I, when I talk to a young person who doesn't seem to have direction in their life and they don't know what God is directing them to do and they're just kind of meandering around, I always ask them what their walk with the Lord is like. I always ask them uh, in proper way, I always ask them if there's sin in their life because if there's sin in their life, then they're not going to be able to discern God's will. I ask them what their, their walk with the Lord is because if they're not walking with the Lord, He can't direct them and they don't know His truth and all of the decisions that they make are based upon human reasoning or emotions and everything is just a cloud to them. And how many emotional decisions have been made just in, the, in, in, in our lifetimes that were not spiritual decisions and we never finished and accomplished what God wanted us to do? I wonder how many preachers have focused on emotional decisions and led people to trust in their own emotions and some warm, warm fuzzy feeling, but they never were spiritual decisions in the first place. And it was man-driven and not God-driven. I just wonder how much of that has gone on. I wonder how many people have heard the gospel and made an emotional decision, but never made a spiritual decision and never really trusted in Christ as their Savior. I've talked to people who cannot give a clear testimony of a time in their life where they've placed Jesus uh, they've chosen Jesus as their Savior and placed their trust in Him to forgive their sins. Now they have a false hope. I've seen too many shallow professing individuals to believe that all of them are truly saved. I'm just being honest with you. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. I wonder how many true believers are living in defeat because you made a decision in the past that was an emotional decision and you failed to follow through or to keep your commitment and now you believe that God won't use you anymore. And if that's you, I want to tell you this morning, look at John Mark. God wants to bring us back to usefulness, right? But it needs to be the right way. And I just wonder how much God wants to accomplish in the lives of people at Brentwood Baptist Church in the coming year and how much we will listen to his Holy Spirit and to truth and to surrender and to truly be sanctified as he wants to accomplish in our lives. We need a stirred heart, but we need a stirred heart with a spirit that makes us willing.